Good morning, church. I'm not entirely sure how many people here are familiar with their English literature from high school. For those of you that it might not have been that far away, you, you might have some recollection of this. Uh, for those of you that are not yet in high school, it's coming. Uh, but in 1954, William Golding published a book by the title of Lord of the Flies. And it's been made into a, a, a couple of movies and a radio broadcast, but it's a very telling description of the inclination of the human heart. It's set during an unnamed war and begins with an, uh, an evacuation plane crashing near uh, an isolated island in the Pacific Ocean. And the entire book is a group of English boys attempting to govern themselves while they're waiting for hope to arrive. And this is a gross oversimplification of the book, but basically it is two competing tribes loosely working together uh, to survive, one led by Ralph, the other by Jack. And together they develop a plan of hunting for food, securing shelter, and maintaining a smoke signal so that way if any ships are passing by that they can signal for help. Unfortunately, the longer they stay on the island, the boys degenerate into paranoia and savage attempts to seize power from one another, killing young children in the process. At the end, help finally arrives, and the boys break down weeping as civility starts to come back, and they realize the inhumanity and the depravity that's within their own hearts. Granted, this is a work of fiction. It's not a historical narrative, but Golding's novel exposes the darkness within the human heart that you and I so often attempt to hide. And culturally, we like to think that we're farther along than cultures and generations past. We say things like, or we look to, to history and we say things like, well, I would never allow something like that to happen. Or even in today's atmosphere, you hear a lot of the phrase of standing on the right side of history. And we look in judgment at generations past willingly neglecting the depravity and the darkness that is in our own hearts. As a nation, we justify murder as abortion. We justify racism and hatred under the banner of border security. We justify sexual sin by calling it civil rights. Whatever and wherever you stand in your own personal worldview politically, or academically, the nature of the human heart is to trust self and not others. Your heart tells you to trust yourself, not anyone outside of you speaking into you, especially not God. Just like Ralph and Jack, your heart left to itself does not lead you to find wisdom but takes you on a path of self-destruction that drags others along. 
And in Psalm 14, David speaks to that condition. He addresses the depravity of the human heart. Because in your heart, there is no self-contained wisdom. There is not hope contained within yourself. You cannot muster enough strength or courage or wisdom in your own merit to save yourself. But there is hope outside of yourself. And I would suggest that David is arguing within this psalm that salvation does not come from within, but only comes from the Lord. Not by striving to be a better person or doing enough good deeds, but by confessing in three ways. In verses 1 through 3, a heart of defiance. A heart of defiance. And secondly, in verses 4 through 6, a heart in danger. And lastly, in verse 7, the need of a heart for delivery. For those of you that take notes, I'll read that one more time. In verses 1 through 3, a heart of defiance. Secondly, in 4 through 6, a heart in danger. And lastly, in verse 7, the need of a heart for delivery. And before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And we ask that you would meet us here in this place. Pour out your spirit in this place. Speak through your word. God, don't just let this be a collection of my thoughts. Don't let this sermon be my agenda. But God, I pray that you would use me to speak your gospel truth to your people. Bring hope. Bring redemption through the power of your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. And as we examine David's study of the human heart, the first thing that we see is a heart of defiance. Looking in verse 1, he says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Within the Hebrew language, there are actually several different words for fool. And the word that's used here, for you grammar and Hebrew nerds, the word is nabal, but the word itself does not refer to a lack of intellect. This is not uh, a, a lower level thinking type of fool, but it is a fool of morality. It's a lack of morals. It could be described as aggressive perversity. That this type of fool is living in outright defiance of right behavior. And this type of fool says that there is no God. Literally, it translates as God is not. This person of irresponsible defiance is saying that even if there is a God somewhere out there, he is not actively involved in creation. If there is such a God that would create something, He's out there, and he does not engage whatsoever. God is not. And David starts off this psalm. This is a, a song it listed as to the choir master. God's people would begin singing about the fool 
who's living in rebellion of God. And in their defiance, David writes that they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Paul reiterates this fact later in Romans chapter 1, where he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the pursuit of human wisdom, looking within self for advancement, mankind turns away from the immortal God and focuses on finding wisdom in self, other man, and the created world itself, looking not to the creator but to creation. Then David moves on saying, Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man. And quick reminder for those of you that might not have been with us this summer, anytime you see Lord, all caps, in the Old Testament, that's the given uh, name, that, that the covenant name of God that he has given to his people. Instead of just knowing God by a title, he says, you can know me as Yahweh. I am the covenant God of Israel. And so anytime you see Lord all caps, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This covenant God of of creation, the God who makes himself known to his people, looks down on all of the sons of Adam. And while all people might not be as perverse as the fool in verse 1, the Nabal fool who lives in outright defiance, none have been found to act wisely. They have turned aside and they have become corrupt, literally translated rotten to the core. That feeling of exasperation when you reach for that last honey crisp apple and you see that soft spot and you're like, all right, well, I'm just going to cut off that rotten spot and enjoy the rest of the apple. And you, so you slice and you realize that the rottenness goes a little deeper. And so you keep slicing, but as deep as you go, you find that the rottenness has tainted the entire apple. That is the description of how sin invades the human heart. That man is rotten to the core. Not as rotten as he could possibly be, but that all of your of yourself, your soul, is tainted by the perversity of sin. And this theme is repeated throughout Scripture, the wickedness of the human heart. In the flood in Genesis, there's so much perversity that God floods the world to get rid of the wickedness that is is covering the, the land. In the book of Judges, God's people themselves are characterized as doing what is right in their own eyes and repeat this motif of turning away from God, and he raises up a judge to deliver them. And they live in peace and harmony for a while, and then they turn their back 
a generation later. And God's people continue to live in defiance of Him. And so He brings in invading armies that take them into exile. God's people and creation itself continues to repeat this motif of selfish rebellion and self-reliance. It's captured here in the Psalms and Paul reminds us in Romans. Even within our so-called civilized era where we think we're so much more advanced than these biblical people who just didn't understand. We see atrocities in the past hundred years such as the Holocaust of trying to exterminate an entire group of people. We see extremists like uh, ISIS that are are, are terrorizing people over uh, uh, theological views and beheading people that disagree with them. Even here, within our American history, we see the dehumanizing way that we have treated one another over over, uh, literal surface issues such as race relations. With World War II and the the Japanese internment camps, with uh, uh, America's tragic history between white people and the African-American people, between the way that we are even treating the Latino community in this present time. We, as a people, not as two rivers, not as Americans, we as people on the place of earth are naturally inclined to repeat a theme of rebellion. And you might even be saying here this morning, that's not me. That I would, I would never treat somebody like that. I'm, I'm more advanced and I'm more educated than that. I would never do something like that. Or I believe that people are naturally good within their heart. That slowly, yeah, there might be some, some mistakes, but uh, uh, over history that we are becoming better as a people. But I would argue that at the very least, you believe in the total depravity of mankind by the very fact that you lock your doors at night. You believe that other people are not to be trusted because you lock your car door and your home out of fear of what others may do. And so unconsciously, we admit that the human heart is depraved even within the church. We like to think that we're better than that, and yet, so often it's easy to live life as practical atheists. The Christian can begin to live their life in in such a way that instead of appealing to God and His wisdom and His mercy and His grace, You and I try to find our own wisdom and our own understanding in ourselves. And often prayer ends up being a last resort instead of the foundation of our wisdom. Communal worship, getting together on Sunday mornings for singing 
uh, psalms and hymns and for, for hearing the word. It's a wonderful thing unless something better comes up. Maybe the family is, is going on a hike that morning or you know, it's just a beautiful beach day or to really step on some toes. If there's a home game for your alma mater, if something better comes up, communal worship can be put on the back burner. And in regard to Scripture itself, how lazily we approach the living Word of God. I remember when the seventh Harry Potter book came out, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I bought it at midnight. I wanted to be one of those first people to get it, and I read through that book within 24 hours because I didn't want anyone to spoil anything for me. And tragically, I confess that I have never read Scripture as fervently as I read that book. And I'm ashamed to admit that, but I want that to change. But even within the church, it's easy to live lives of practical atheism, acting like we know better or we don't need to depend and trust on what God provides. The human heart is naturally inclined toward rebellion. You and I are no different. We desire self-reliance. We might not be living in outright rebellion, but as David says in verse 3, that all have turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so, for just a moment, I want you to begin asking, how has your heart turned aside? You might not be living in outright defiance of the Word of God, but how is your heart inclined to turn aside from the living God? And as you begin to wrestle with the defiance within your own heart, David introduces his second point, a heart in danger. Carries on in verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? At first reading, it seems like he's directly addressing or talking about the enemies of God. But if you focus closer, it's not just people that are adamantly against God, the people that are trying to destroy God's people, but if you look closely, he describes them as they are eating up bread, or they're eating up people as they eat bread. They do not call upon Yahweh. These are the fools in defiance. Their foolishness has brought them to such a place that they have no concern for other people whatsoever. And thus making them evildoers, they make themselves into a position of being an enemy of God. But at their core, it is a lack of concern for anything except their appetite. It is a lack of concern for for anything other than themselves. They consume everything in their path regardless of who it affects. And by not calling on Yahweh, they trust and rely on themselves, their own wisdom, their own understanding. 
And David gives a warning. He says, they, there, they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You, the evildoers, would shame the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is his refuge. These fools that have made themselves enemies of God are in great terror because judgment is coming and they don't even see it. They don't see the righteous judgment that will come upon them. They live in defiance. They eat up people. They shame the plans of the poor. They live their lives as rebels, consuming, destroying, and mocking the very people of God. But God is with His people. God is with the righteous, and Yahweh is their refuge. And sometimes, refuge even comes in that very moment. It's an immediate response to bring God's people out of persecution. But sometimes, sometimes justice comes in the form of eternal consequence. That there will be an eternal justice as God cares for His people. For those of you that have read through the book of Revelation, in Revelation 20, John uh, is describing this vision that he sees of the end of creation, or of this physical creation as we know it. And he describes the defeat of Satan as he is thrown into the lake of fire, and people uh, for, of all time are resurrected, and death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire with Satan. And then in Revelation 20, verse 15, John writes, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life that contains the names of God's people, those people are thrown into the lake of fire. That one day that there will be an eternal judgment before the very throne of God. And I don't share that to frighten people. This isn't one of those churn or burn type sermons where like, straighten up now or you're going to hell. This isn't that kind of sermon But I share that because there is an urgency of eternal consequence. For people in this room that might not be believers in the Scriptures that we hold to, I urge you that no one is promised tomorrow. We're not even promised this afternoon. And if you're not sure where you stand in the the terms of of eternity, I ask, I beg, please don't wait for the day thinking that one day, I'll I'll, I'll make that decision later, but right now I I just want to do my own thing. Please don't wait for a day that might never come. But addressing specifically the believers in this room, you and I should have an urgency to share because we know the judgment of eternal consequence that's coming. You wouldn't leave someone that is unaware that the building around them is burning down. You wouldn't leave them to die within a burning building. You wouldn't let a a, a child play with poison or power tools because you know the dangerous consequences that could follow. But yet when it comes to someone's eternity, the eternity of someone's very soul, 
why is it so difficult to share the gospel and bring hope? I'm not sure if you're familiar with a, there's a comedian-magician duo by the name of Penn and Teller, and they're pretty crass. Uh, they're, they're talented magicians, and uh, getting through the crassness, they can, be, uh, they can be amusing. But one of the comedians, Penn, uh, Penn Gillette, is a staunch atheist to where he will openly mock people of faith and, and challenge them on their beliefs. But in 2009, he shared a vlog And for those of you that are not technically inclined, that's a a video blog, almost like a video diary where he's just sharing his thoughts with the people. Uh, He shared a vlog about someone sharing the gospel with him. This person came up to him after one of their shows and and just shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and gave Penn a Bible. Because he cared so much for Penn's soul that he was compelled to, to try to rescue him from the the danger that his soul was in for eternity. And Penn actually respected this man's courage and the fact that he was standing up for what he believed. And in Penn's own words, let me share this with you. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Here's a man who's living his heart in outright defiance of Scripture, blatantly denying that there is a God And yet he understands the importance that if we believe that there is eternal life in heaven or in hell, and we are not sharing that news with people, that is effectively communicating, I hate you enough that I don't want you to have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, let that never be said of us. We have an urgency to share this good news with everyone around us. Because Scripture teaches that there will be a final judgment one day. That those who live in defiance and self-reliance will face an eternal judgment and their hearts are in danger. This morning, is that your heart? Are you one of the hearts in danger this morning? Brothers and sisters, do you have an urgency to share the danger of defiance. I don't put that on you to give you a task or a burden, but to ask, do you realize that there is an urgency of eternal consequence? 
And lastly, after confessing both a heart of defiance and a heart in danger, we see David's final point, the need of a heart for delivery. And after focusing on foolishness and self-reliance about how your defiance puts your own heart in eternal danger, David ends on a hopeful note. Looking not to the foolishness of defiance, but looking forward to a day of salvation. In verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. David recognizes that salvation and hope can never come from within. It has to come from outside, from Zion. Physically, Zion was the holy hill that Jerusalem was built upon, but Scripture also refers to heaven itself as Zion. That hope has to come from there. And that Yahweh will be the one to restore. And when He does, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. David has examined the human heart and he's found it to be corrupt and rotten to the very core. There is none who does good. Not even one. Salvation can never be the result of human effort. You can't do enough good things. You can't volunteer enough. You can't give enough away. You can't be a good enough person or in our cultural context, you can't be woke enough. You can't fight enough causes or be on the right side of history. Salvation has to come from outside. And that, sal- that salvation from Zion comes and is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That the Son of God left the safety of His throne to live with, to dwell with, to put on flesh and live among a sinful, rebellious people. And He lived a life not of defiance and self-reliance, but He lived a life of perfect obedience. And yet he was condemned by the very people that he came to save. And that in his condemnation, he took your sin with him and nailed it to the cross. And it died that day on Calvary, buried with him in that tomb. And three days later, as he rose again, in victory over sin and death, he gives you his righteousness that if you submit your rebellious heart to Him, that you are marked and imputed with His righteousness, His obedience, His perfect status as a child of God. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because of the very defiance within your own heart, your heart cannot save you. You cannot redeem yourself. You cannot be wise enough or good enough. And yet God intervened and stepped in to redeem your defiant heart and rescue you from danger. And so this morning, I ask you, will you continue in your self-reliance, either in a blatant rebellion or as a practical atheist, living a life of defiance that puts your very heart in eternal danger? Or will you confess your sinful heart of rebellion, recognizing the urgency of facing your own heart without a redeeming God? And will you receive and rest in the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that in this very time that You remind us through Your Word that while we cannot save ourselves, that you stepped in. God, we confess that far too often our hearts are inclined to rebellion and we revel in that. We want our autonomy. We want our independence. But God, I pray that we would confess our rebellion and submit our defiance to you. Let us trust in the salvation that comes from Zion and is found only in Jesus Christ. Give us an urgency to share that gospel with a broken world around us. And give us a passion for your word and for your name. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.